so today begins uh, a week called oftentimes Holy Week, uh, a week that begins uh, on Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday was literally the, the Sunday that Jesus would ride in uh, on the foal of a donkey. And that would happen on a Sunday. And then on Monday, you would see Jesus go and he would cleanse the temple. And he would rid of it uh, of the thin of uh, the thieves and the robbers and the den of robbers, as he called it. Those who were manipulating and taking advantage of the people coming to do sacrifice, exchanging money. On Tuesday, he would curse the fig tree, and uh, it it would wither right in front of him. On Wednesday, his disciples would see that fig tree that it was cursed, but it was also the day in which they would go and hear the Olivet Discourse where Jesus would speak on the Mount of Olives and he would speak about uh, some of the things to come. On Thursday, they would prepare the Passover feast. They would have the Paschal lamb that they were preparing. And then that evening, they would have a Passover meal in an upper room that was prepared earlier that day. That night, he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would have sweat drops of blood pouring from his head. He would feel the weight of the agony that was ahead, not merely because of the torture and the execution, but most of all, because he knew that he was the substitute, that he was a Passover lamb per se, that he would take on the sins of the world. And that evening, after the Passover lamb, after the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane, where his disciples, uh, the trusted three, had fallen asleep, we know that he would be arrested and charged by literally um, probably 8 a.m. the following morning. He had endured six different trials in the hands of five different men, all of which he was innocent but yet they charged him anyway. By 9 a.m., he was hanging on the cross. He hung there for six hours, and next week we'll talk uh, about what happened on that glorious Sunday two days later. Now, the reason I tell you this is because we are beginning today what we call an Easter experience. One of the things that I realized uh, several months ago as we began preparing and planning, uh, we had a, a day retreat where we all took off and we were gone. We just talked about Easter and what that meant. And I had grand ideas of like, how do we really hone in on this idea of Easter? And so we thought long and hard about how we do something for those of us who are believers in Jesus and have been for quite some time. Because typically what happens in the church is you and I, we have Palm Sunday pretty traditionally. Here at Stone Point, we've never made Palm Sunday a real traditional thing outside of the fact that on Palm Sunday, six years ago, we started Stone Point Church. Other than that, we haven't really ever just focused in on it. On Easter, it's no secret around here. On Easter, what we do is we address the resurrection every year from a different angle so that people who are skeptical about Jesus, about who he was, about his death, about his burial, about the resurrection, we address it in such a way that they would be not only intrigued, but they would walk away asking questions that have never been answered. And so it leaves many of us in here that have been believers for quite some time kind of wondering, is there more in terms of the Easter experience? And so we felt like there was. 
And so one of the things that we wanted to do here was we wanted to give you the idea of everything that happened throughout a week. Um, and, and it's covered very quickly in the Bible and, and the contents that you have. I mean, I gave you a quick rundown, and you see in all four Gospels the, the events that transpired and different angles to those events, but we want you to experience them fully. And so one of the things that we're doing is we've created the Easter experience. And so the Easter experience begins this morning. Hopefully you'll leave here today uh, understanding this message that we're about to share with you. But as you walk out our doors after this message, we invite you to grab a bag that's sitting outside uh, at both lobbies. You can take the lobby out here heading north to this side of the parking lot. You can head straight out further east uh, in our front doors, and there's going to be bags there. And there you're going to find inside that bag a card that says the Easter experience. And then on the back, you're going to see that we're going to provide you with six days of daily reading. It's already started today. It's up on our website. If you go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash the Easter experience, you'll know what the Easter experience is. We'll outline it there, but there's a day one of reading. And in the six days, we're going to take and reflect on seven statements that Jesus said while he was on the cross. We're going to address six of them through daily Bible readings, and we're going to address the seventh on the Lord's Supper um, uh, service on Good Friday evening. Now you're going, well, okay, I, didn't, I haven't heard about this Good Friday event. I mean, are we going to have it here? Are we going to have child care? What are we going to do? Well, here's what we realize. We're asking a lot of our people. We're asking you to serve. We're asking you to pour in and invest on the weekend. If you haven't signed up to serve, we encourage you to do so. We still need help at both locations on our Easter egg hunts and setting up two campuses that day. And we're asking people to be sacrificial. Why? Because that's what Easter's about, a sacrifice. But we also realized that it would kind of be foolish to ask our people to come to a Friday evening service, have people help us with childcare, then ask them to spend half a day on Saturday preparing for egg hunts and Easter bunnies and things like that. A lot of people go, I don't even know that's a part of Easter. And then the last part is to come back on a Sunday and, and to be a part of a resurrection celebration. And so we decided what we'd do is we would actually get the, the service to you. And so if you go to the Easter experience on our website, stonepointchurch forward slash the Easter experience, then from 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. Central Standard Time, you're going to have about a 20 to 22 minute service where we've already prepared for it and we're providing you with the tools to have the Lord's Supper with us in your homes. And so the good thing is if you have kids, you can put them to bed about 8.30 and at 9 o'clock you can, you can have a service with your spouse. If you have grandkids and they're hanging out, well, guess what? They can be a part of that. Anybody can be a part of it. You can do it with your journey group. You can do it with friends. You can share it with your neighbors. You can tell your aunt that lives in New York to come and be a part of it. We would love for them to be a part of it. But what we encourage you to do is grab this bag. Inside of it, you'll also find a couple of um, things there for the Lord's Supper. We've put two in every bag, assuming that there's two adults in most homes. You may say, well, I have a teenager who knows Jesus and uh, I have a cousin that's gonna come over. Well, there's plenty there. So you fill your bag with the, those that you need for a Good Friday service and all the other details are inside on the back of this page. Got it? And so we want you to experience Easter in a way that maybe you never have before. And uh, I'm very proud of our team. I'm proud of the thought that they've put into this. I'm proud of the effort and the work. And uh, I'm mostly proud because I think it gives us an opportunity here at Stone Point to reflect on more than Easter bunnies and eggs. 
And just so you understand, the whole concept of Astara and Estor, which is a, a, a goddess that a lot of times are um, talked about with you know, eggs and bunnies and man, should we even be doing this? There's nothing really substantial in history regarding that. And so you may have heard that hares and bunnies and all that is surrounded a goddess and we shouldn't be doing it. There's nothing in history. I've looked and looked and looked and looked and looked because every single year you see it posted on somebody's feed about why we shouldn't be doing those things and should be focusing on Christ. And so let me just say real quickly, we are gonna focus on Christ and we are gonna use Easter eggs and bunnies for those that they're not worried about Christ at all. And we're gonna serve them well. And then we're gonna invite them because our greatest hope is to share the resurrection with them. And so we encourage you to be a part of that, but we also know that if you're a Christian and you have some strong faith like me, I realize that you don't care about Easter bunnies and eggs. Quite frankly, neither do I. It's very Americanized. It's very culturally irrelevant in my mind when it comes to the gospel. But if we can use it, regardless of if it was meant for a goddess or not, for what was meant for evil, God uses for good, then let's use it for that. And let's make a difference. And let's allow it to saturate into our hearts and minds on this Palm Sunday morning. So let me pray for us one more time so that we enter into this text with a clear heart and mind. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We ask God that you would speak to our hearts and our minds here on this Wills Point campus. God, we ask that you would reveal yourself in ways that maybe we've never seen before. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, folks, let's roll. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. I want you to understand that uh, every single gospel account, both John as well as the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are similar gospels, they all give narratives to this final week, the Passion Week um, that we have heard of, the Holy Week in which you have heard referred to. But I chose Luke mostly because Luke is uh, historically relevant, He cares and pays attention to details historically, and I think he uses something that really is prominent among Greco-Roman times in his writing and the way that he outlines the narrative, and I I want you to see it. And so if you understand a little bit about Greco-Roman thought, then I think you'll see that it is very consistent in the writings of all narratives, all gospel narratives, that it is consistent about some fuzzy details. And the reason why is you, you go, well, from John's view, he says this, and, and then Matthew's view says this, but they leave out this, or they add a character here. And in Greco-Roman writing, you'll notice the themes that are happening there and that they're consistent with all Greco-Roman literature. And so what the author is doing is is purposeful regarding the times. Now, what Luke is doing is he's going to set the stage for this Palm Sunday based off of a Greco-Roman entry of a king to a city. And so when a king would come into a city in that day and time, there were basically three or four things that were going to transpire when he came in. 
First, when he came in, there was going to be kind of a grandiose announcement. There was going to be a large announcement. It was going to be a, a prominent thing when he came in. There would be uh, uh, elected officials, and there would be other high-ranking city people. There would be common people that would come out into the streets that would even be invited, because oftentimes what would happen before the king came riding in would be his his followers, they would come and in a sense declaring that, hey, the king has arrived. And as they prepare the way, almost in the sense that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, these men are coming and they're preparing the way for this king to come into this city. And there are elected officials and there are other people that probably are, are surrounding the area and they're waiting for this man to come in. And when he comes in, behold, he's going to most likely come riding in on a huge horse. And when he comes riding in on a huge horse, most likely in Greco-Roman times, they would ride a white horse. And that is true in historical times. It would be a white horse, not always, but most likely it would be a, a, a big white horse led by an entourage of people into the city. And as he comes in, there would be people that would be singing and shouting, uh, maybe a, a hymn of some sort, or a song, or a poet, uh, a poem, or a poetical song that, that they would be referring to their king and all the things that he has done. And then as he would enter into the city, he would greet everyone. But one of the first agendas that he would have is that he would go into the city where he was, and he would go to their temple, and he would in a sense, make a sacrifice or honor their God in some way to appease the people. Now, I want you to join me in this narrative in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, and I want you to see the consistent themes that Luke uses here to speak of another king, one who would come and one who would lay his life down, that of Jesus. And in verse 28, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, what we know is, is that he is coming from the, the Mount of Olives, and he's, he's coming from the eastern side of Jerusalem, which would have been an elevation of about 2,600 feet roughly. And so we know that, listen, if he is going to come from the Mount of Olives, that he's going to what? Descend on the city, right? He's going down. But what did the word say right there? And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up, to Jerusalem. So the question is like, why would, why would Luke write that at all? I mean, clearly Luke knows the area. Clearly Luke knows what he's writing about. And matter of fact, you're going to see it here in just a second, what he's doing. But what he is simply saying is that Jesus is not just ascending or descending per se into a city, but what he is doing is he is preparing himself for something he has resolved to do for many years. And that is to lay his life down. And it is a higher calling, not a lower one. And so what we see here is that Luke makes sure that you and I understand that he is going up to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is, is that you see from John chapter 11, verse 57, that the chief priests, the Pharisees had given order that if there was anyone who knew where Jesus was, that he should, they should let him them know, meaning the Pharisees, because they wanted to arrest him. And so here it is, Jesus had resolved himself to Jerusalem, going up to a higher calling of God, and he's going to come in a prominent way, much like a Greco-Roman king would, and he doesn't care who knows. 
He doesn't mind if the Pharisees know where he is. He's not in hiding. Why? Because he's resolved himself to a greater and higher calling. And so in verse 29, it says, when he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples ahead saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever set. So in verse 29, you see that he's going to draw near to Bethpage onto Bethany and, and he's coming to the Mount of Olives. He's going to come on down. Now I said a second ago that it's the Eastern gate. Now here's what's interesting about the Eastern gate in Ezekiel chapter 10. I'm reading Ezekiel right now. I'm studying it um, intently. And that's one of the things I'm, I've done this last week. I, I read uh, through chapters 11 and in chapter 10, you see that Ezekiel sits and he watches the Shekinah glory of God. God depart the temple and it leaves on the eastern side, which is what? The Mount of Olives. Now, what's interesting is, and the reason I say that is because the Shekinah glory of God will depart on the eastern side of the city. And that is, say, 580, 590 years before Jesus would ever be on the scene. Then he's born in the town of Bethlehem. He lives in a, a, a perfect life. And then ultimately now we see that he resolved himself. And where is he coming from? He's coming from the eastern side, the eastern ridge. Why? Because he wants to make it a very clear distinction among what Ezekiel was doing and what God is doing through Jesus coming from the east. God departs from the east, and he says, now I'm going to bring life, and I'm going to bring it from the east. Now, let me ask you a question. This is just a, a quick thought. Where do you think Jesus is going to come back from the second time around when he comes back? The east. The east. There you go. He's going to come back from the east. Now, here's what's interesting. The eastern gate is boarded shut right now. There's stones and, and piles and piles of rubble on the eastern gate because the Muslims have barricaded. Now, let me ask you a question. You think Jesus is worried about that one? No. And so he is getting ready to come back, but merely as he's preparing to lay his life down, he sends two ahead. He goes, now I want you to go and I want you to find the fold of a donkey, a colt tied, and, and then it's going to be one that no one's ever said in. And he goes, and untie it, and then bring it here. And if you want to ask you, what are, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went with him, and they found it just as he told, uh, told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said, hey, why are you untying the colt? And then look at the response. They said, the Lord has need of it. Exactly what he said. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, it wasn't uncommon that a merchant or a kind man of peace would ride into a city, not on a white horse, meaning that he was a conquering king, but they, he would oftentimes ride in at the foal of a donkey. And why? Because it, it meant peace. It, it literally meant that, hey, I'm coming and I, I don't, I don't want to take up arms against you. And so here it is, Jesus encourages these disciples to go get this donkey, untie it, bring it to him. They set him on it. And it is exemplifying this, that Jesus would be a man of peace. Unfortunately, it's not what the Jewish people were looking for in the Messiah. Unfortunately, it's not what they were hoping for. They would have loved for Jesus' entourage coming in, riding a white horse, mowing down all of Rome and setting them up to prominence in the place of King David, say, a thousand years earlier. 
But that's not what Jesus would come to do. And the reason why is because Jesus wasn't coming to set up an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one. And he knew that a heavenly kingdom was not set up by destruction upon man on this earth, but it was set up by peace and men's hearts. And that's what Jesus would do. What's interesting is, is that if you start thinking about Greco-Romans, you think about Grecians. Well, Grecians were synonymous with, with making a, a large entourage. Matter of fact, if you remember, one of the greatest Grecian kings that ever lived was a guy named Alexander the Great. And Zechariah, the prophet, he writes about it. And in Zechariah chapter nine, I'm provided for you up on the screen. I want you to see verses one through nine. I'm not gonna read them all, but I want you to just make a reference of this. And here's why. Zechariah is speaking of a prophet or in a prophecy of one to come, a king who would come. And this is say 100, maybe 150. I, I almost hate to say it because I'm not exactly sure of the dates. So I should have checked that. But the bottom line is 100 plus years before Alexander would ever come, you have a guy named Zechariah writing about it. He's not the only one that would refer to him, but Alexander comes. And what he's going to do is he's going to come from the north of Jerusalem. He's going to come from Syria down to Phoenicia. From Phoenicia, he's going to come down to the Philistine plain. And ultimately, he's going to butt up against the door of Jerusalem. And he is ransacking everything in his path. It is like a tornado that starts from the north and descends upon the south. And everything in its way is being destroyed. And Alexander is setting up a Grecian prominence. And he's doing it among the people. And so in Zechariah chapter nine, he speaks of it. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders it. There's Ty and Sidon. Though they are very wise, Tyre has built up herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of all of her possessions. So we see that Tyre and uh, Sidon are going to fall. Then you get down to verse uh, 5, and Ashkelon shall see it, and they'll be afraid. Gaza too, they'll writhe in anguish. You see they're just moving down. Ekron also, because of its hopes, are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. And you just see all of these things just happening and then it says in verse seven, I'll take away its blood from its mouth, its abominations from between its teeth. It shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then verse eight, then I will encamp around my house as a guard. So God's saying through the prophet Zechariah, he goes, everything's gonna be destroyed from the north to the south, but don't worry, I'm gonna set up a guard around my house, meaning Jerusalem. Now, if you understand in this time, what's happened is, Jerusalem has already been ransacked once at the hands of the Babylonians. You had the Assyrians come in. From there, you had the Persians. You had the Medes that kind of had a little hand in it. Now you're into the Grecians and then eventually the Romans. Well, he's writing a time period about a king who's coming to mow down his enemies. Israel has already been destroyed. Guys like Ezra and Nehemiah have already helped with Zerubbabel, the priest. They've already rebuilt the temple. They've already rebuilt the walls. And so if you can imagine, they've got a fortified city that they're hoping would be protected. And God says, and I'm going to establish myself around its borders and I'm going to predict, predict it. And the historian, Josephus, he actually writes in uh, about seven different chronicles or books about different events that happen in Jewish culture and time. And he actually says that 
what happened was is Alexander the Great did in fact do exactly what Zechariah promised, that he started in the northern uh, areas of, uh, of uh, Syria, went down to Phoenicia, all the way down through the Philistine plain, Gaza, all of those different places, and he, he butted up, and there was a, a, a priest that walked out to the city, outside of the city, and they met Alexander the Great, and the priest begged him, please do not destroy our city. And then he showed him a prophecy from Daniel about a king from, from Greece that would ultimately overthrow the Persians. And it is said, not by folklore, but by historical accounts that Josephus said that Alexander's heart was softened. And in fact, not only did he spare the city of Jerusalem, but he granted them benefits because he knew that he should fear a God who knew him way before his life ever came to be. Now, you may wonder why in the world am I even telling you that? And here's why, is because we see that Jesus would come not as an Alexander the Great mowing down his enemies, but a man of peace riding on the foal of a donkey. And just as Alexander the Great was spoken about, we know that he was spoken about. Why? Because in Zechariah chapter 9, look at verse 9, where it speaks about the king would come. He gives a comparison between the first eight verses of uh, Alexander the Great, and then in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a, a colt, the foal of a donkey? I think I could end right there. Like that, that is an amazing, amazing account that not only do you have it historically, but biblically. God is preparing for you and I an opportunity to meet him at peace. I mean, think about it. You and I in our sin, you and I in all of the things that we have going on for us, the muck and the mire that we find ourselves in, the hostility of our sin against the righteous and holy God, and he's willing to meet us outside of the city and offer us peace. That is a profound thought in which today, listen, if you are in outright rebellion against God in your sin, today is the day that you say, God, no more. I need your peace. God, I want to give you my life and my heart. I want to follow you all the days of my life, not because I know everything, but I do know this. Historically, it seems to be accurate. Biblically, it's too much to grasp. And I can't believe that you would offer me peace. And today is that day. In verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, do you see what his entourage does? They put him on not a white horse, but a donkey. And he comes in offering peace, but they go ahead. And what do they do? They begin to, to in humility, spread their garments across the road. That is an act from the apostles, the 12, of just saying, we recognize who he is and what he's doing. And it was a recognition in part, not because they understood everything, because obviously it's not going to come clear for another 50 plus days. But the bottom line is they're beginning to see who he is and they lay their cloaks down in humility. What God wants is for, him, for us to lay our garments down in humility, to come before him. 
Verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, blessed the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And there was a proclamation of not just an entourage of people coming, but of singing and shouting. And what are they singing? They're singing a great Jewish Hallel, which is a praise. It was Psalm 115, 116, 117, 118, Psalms of deliverance about God delivering his people. And what do they do? They quote a classic Jewish citation in a song and they pin it to this guy named Jesus. And what do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Y'all heard it? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, and that's what it is, you know? They're simply saying, here I am and here he is. And what's interesting is it's Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what he said. Now, interesting enough, you see this other little added citation by Luke, in peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now look, he says in peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why did he not say in peace on earth? Because there was no peace on earth. What you had was hostility at the hands of men who believed that they should take a conquering king in Jesus that offered peace and that they should charge him, though innocent, and put him on the cross. And so there was no peace on earth. And so Luke, I believe, purposely left that out. But here it is, Jesus is there. Interesting enough, Psalm 118, verse 24, is something I quote to my son every day before he gets out of the vehicle. And I say, hey, Brady, what is it, man? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Two verses earlier in this Jewish Hallel is this verse. And why? Because here it is, he rides in on a colt, the foal of the donkey, and this is the day the Lord has made, and we shall rejoice and be glad in it, and they will. And they will sing and they'll shout and they'll give glory to God in verse 39. And then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Listen, you can do miracles. You can be prominent in this, in this town. But what's interesting is Jesus always shunned prominence. Always. He never wanted to ever be in the spotlight. Matter of fact, oftentimes he would do a miracle and then he would withdraw, right? Like people would be searching for him. They would be like, Jesus, you did something. We're looking for you to do something again. He's constantly moving throughout, wanting to deflect the attention. This one time in the New Testament, you see that he goes, no, give me the attention. And then the Pharisees say, listen, you can do all these miraculous things, but one thing you should not do is be compared to the God of the Bible who brings deliverance to the people. And so he says, rebuke your disciples because what you're doing is allowing them to blaspheme me against our God. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus allowing blasphemy? And the answer is no. And then he replies in a classic way in verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He goes, if they don't speak, if they don't praise, then guess what? Creation will. And you'll see throughout the Old Testament on two or three different accounts that God says that if the people were silent, the rocks, the creation will cry out. And so why can we not be silent in our worship? Is because you and I are the very creation in the image of God meant to give glory and praise to him. 
which is why it baffles me that men in here that could claim to love Jesus can't sing to him. I don't want to camp on that too long, but just a thought. In verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And Jesus begins to weep. Here it is, they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna the highest. They are waving palm branches. They're doing whatever they can in a sense to make a spectacle of this man of peace coming in humility to offer salvation. And then Jesus begins to weep over the city. And the question is, is why? Because think about it. He's coming down the Eastern Ridge. He sees the city of Jerusalem and now he's brought to tears weeping. If you look at the Greek word there, wept, it's not just a, a tear or two, but it almost gives the emphatic idea that he sobs and sobs and sobs and sobs. Why? Because of John one, he comes among his people and yet they do not recognize him. And he realizes that Jewish, the Jewish people and the city of Israel and their 11th hour. The clock is about to strike midnight and the prince has not been shown the proper respect that he should. And he, he mourns for that city. Why? Because their nation is going to face destruction. And matter of fact, he sees it coming. In verse 42, he says, saying, with that, even you had shown on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He goes, I've given you an opportunity to meet the man of peace, to enjoy a repentant heart, but you've missed it. The window is closing. You've not submitted your spirit or your will to God. You have not looked upon his son and you are missing it. And listen, it's not any different than you and I. The window is closing. You may think, well, let me just get my life together. Let me just get married or settle down. Let me just have some children. Maybe I'll find a way to settle in. Maybe you're here and you're like, well, let me just find a little more research. Maybe search a little bit more. And, and listen, the window is closing. But for the Jews, it closed very quickly. And what's interesting is, is that he, he gives now a prophecy in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus gives a prophecy that's going to happen within 35 to 37 years of the very words he says, for sure within 40. Depending on where the calendar you set this event transpiring. Josephus, the very one who wrote about the guy I told you about earlier, Alexander the Great, also he wrote in the first century about this idea of what happened with the Jews. And, and this is his words uh, verbatim taken from one of his, uh, I think it was the fifth uh, book about the, the people of Israel in and here's what it says, and I'll put it for you up on the screen. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants were dying by famine. The lanes of the city were full and dead bodies of the age, the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine. And they, they fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. For a time, they, the, the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do so, they had cast them down at the wall in the valleys beneath. Then when Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heave. God called witness to what not he was doing. What happened was is in 66, 
Nero began. Prior to that, there was a, a great revolution taking place, but in 66, it kind of went into a full war. Nero was still on the throne in 68. This guy here that we see, uh, Emperor Titus takes the throne and, and he would make it his charge to end this Judean Roman war conflict. And what they had done was, is they had allowed the people of, of Jerusalem to besiege themselves. They had tried to have conflict, but guess what? They are within those walls, finding a fortified city, and they've hidden themselves in it. And the, the people of Rome can't get into it. And they are zealots that are, are leading the charge on, charge on behalf of Titus, and they're trying to overcome the walls. But what they realized is they couldn't overcome them. And so what they would do is, is simply try to do everything they could to cut off food and supplies. And then they took and they, 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 they did a huge moat around the wall. And that moat was equally as tall, if not higher than the wall of Jerusalem. And what would happen is, is people of Jerusalem would try to, they would leave the city and they would try to escape. But the problem was they had to go through a moat up a wall to get out. Josephus says, and along with another guy, a historian called Tacitus, they would say that approximately 500 Jews were caught daily and crucified. Josephus estimates that about a million Jews died, many of them within starvation because their supplies were cut off. In AD 70, about 40 years after Jesus, the Roman emperor, Titus, had won. The city has been burned, it's been destroyed, the people are scattered, but most of them all but killed. And the people of God, the Israelites, would not enjoy favor upon God from God until 1948. And so from 70 AD until 1948, they're out of their land. And it's exactly what Jesus would speak of in verses 43 and 44. He goes, I'll tear you to the ground, and your children with you. I will not leave what one of you there. Why? Because they rejected this Messiah, the man of peace. And so he says, if you reject me, I'll raise up another people who will love me. But meanwhile, you will find destruction. And then in verse 45 and following, here's what you'll see. Jesus, the next day on Monday, will go in and he will cleanse a temple. You remember the Greco-Roman kings? They would come to the city, led by an entourage, riding a white horse, singing songs of praise, visiting a temple. Jesus was led by an entourage. They lay down their cloaks. He came not on a white stallion, but on a humble foal of donkey. He says, I'm going to make my life worth something. I'm going to lay it down on your behalf. They sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Peace in the heavens. And then he would go and he would visit the temple. And guess what? He would cleanse it. And then five days later, he would lay his life down. Interesting enough, Daniel chapter 9 speaks of 70 weeks of seven. One week in which is, seven, uh, is one seven, which would be seven times seven, 49 years. So 49 years within the prophecy of Daniel 9, the temple would be rebuilt. It happened from the time that Artaxerxes, the king, offered a decree that the temple and the city should be rebuilt, which was about 445 or so. All of that happened by 396. 
then Daniel spoke of another group of 77, or a group of uh, 77s, but it was not going to be just one seven, but it was going to be, what, 68 sevens? And that would make a period of about 483 years, which would bring you all the way up to about AD 30, where Jesus would lay his life down. Most people would say that in the month of Nisan, all the way almost to the date, which was exactly 173 1,880 days based not off the Gregorian calendar that you and I use, which is 365 days, but of the Jewish calendar of 360 days that they used. Why do I tell you all this? It's because on Palm Sunday, you and I should celebrate that the coming king set his own plan and his destination. He did it by the purposes of God, for the purposes of God and for the purposes of people who would meet him as a man of peace. But what do we know? We know this, just as every king in Greco-Roman times would come, we know Jesus is coming back. And let me tell you something, he's going to come back just as you and I should expect, led by an entourage of thousands upon thousands of angels. As they sing and they shout with a loud saying, He will come on a white horse, Revelation 19. He will mow down his adversaries and he will set up a throne in the temple. He's coming. And the window's closing. And so may you this week celebrate what God has done on your behalf. Let me pray for you, church. God, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would use it for your glory and our good. Help us, God, to see your purposes. God, help us to see who you are and what you've done. It is an amazing, amazing work and account. I wish I could speak on it more because I could go for hours. But Lord, I'm so thankful that your word has substance and it's not merely things that you you cause us to think about or dream about. It's not just hoaxes and myths, but it's actually things that are supported by historical works of even people who did not know or believe in you. And so, Lord, I'm thankful of what you've done through your word. God, may we rest in that and celebrate it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.